Well, one of the singular treats of living in the greater Boston area was an orchestra up there called the Handel and Haydn Society. And I never would have heard of them, but I ended up uh, making the acquaintance through a friend of a friend of one of the uh, violinists. And she would come up and stay with us uh, while she rehearsed and performed. And, and we were given free tickets uh, every year to Handel's Messiah. And, uh, and it was uh, remarkable. Uh, I, I would even be willing to overstate it and say it was life-changing. Uh, I don't know what the Atlanta Symphony does. I'm sure it's equally uh, glorious. But uh, a couple of times in reading this passage and thinking through this sermon, I was reminded of, the, uh, of how fantastic uh, is the last portion. I mean, the whole thing is great, but the last portion of the Messiah <clears throat> is glorious, and it's similar to this uh, glorious conclusion to the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, this has been a unique, a dense, uh, a rich letter or sermon, and it uh, has a fitting conclusion. Uh, there's just two main points to the sermon this morning. Uh, one is to talk about leadership, and the other is to talk about the God of peace. Uh, so let's, let's dive in. Uh, I'll read the passage um, out loud. Follow with me in your Bibles. I'm starting in verse 17. Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. I'm sorry, I've got NLT. Is that okay? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with this, although it's not what I'm preaching on. Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls, and they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. Pray for us, for our conscience is clear, and we want to live honorably in everything we do. And especially pray that I would be able to come back to you soon. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood, may he equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen. I urge you, dear brothers and sisters, to pay attention to what I have written in this brief exhortation. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released from jail. If he comes here soon, I will bring him with me to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the believers there. The believers from Italy send you their greetings. May God's grace be with you all. Uh, Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Uh, So, uh, leadership is a stressful topic in an egalitarian world. Uh, in which equal rights are paramount uh, as much as they are misunderstood and misapplied. That would be another conversation for another day, uh, but it does seem to me that some of the stress of the current discussion on power dynamics can only exist uh, in an egalitarian culture uh, where authority is not very well understood. A friend told me after reading uh, David McCulloch's book, 1776, that he was afraid he was becoming a royalist and that he was doubting the legitimacy of the American Revolution. So there's that. Uh, But thinking through leadership, uh, we need to think more broadly uh, and and not simply about what is going on in this verse. So I've got three preliminary points. 
If I misled you into thinking this was a short sermon with only two points, I apologize. <laughs> you should know better. Uh, three preliminary points. First is that obedience to leaders is part of a larger biblical concern for authority and submission. Uh, in our theological tradition, if I can call it that, uh, this flows out of our understanding of the fifth commandment. Uh, this is the way the Westminster catechisms, uh, shorter and larger, deal with the larger warp and woof of authority and submission in the Bible. It all flows out of that commandment to honor parents. Paul wrote in the Ephesians that Christians being filled with the Spirit, he said, since you're filled with the Spirit, he said, don't get drunk with wine, rather be filled with the Spirit, that there were certain things that would happen, and one of those would be uh, submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, uh, this again would be a longer talk, but I don't think, in fact, I'm quite convinced that Paul did not mean their mutual submission, uh, but what he meant was there are a series of relationships in which we all exist uh, in which authority and submission are necessary. So go back and read Paul carefully in Ephesians 5. He talks about husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and bondservants. Uh, elsewhere, he writes about submission to governing authorities, uh, and he also writes to uh, submission to ecclesiastical authorities. Uh, in each of these, again, this is the broader biblical framework, in each of these, obligations exist not only for obedience, but for the proper exercise of authority. So husbands love the wives who submit. Parents do not exasperate the children who obey. Masters treat kindly their bondservants. And those who rule uh, do so justly. And those who govern the church do so uh, as examples uh, rather than domineering. In Colossians 3, Paul writes basically the same thing, but it's interesting there, he doesn't ground it in the reception of the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit and therefore submitting to one another, but he grounds it in putting, off compassion, or putting on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, and love. You probably remember that passage. It's in Colossians 3. You can look it up later. So that's the first preliminary point is that in the Bible there is this overarching concern from the beginning to the end of authority and submission as a grid in which we live our lives and as a grid in which we function um, harmoniously, a grid in which we function uh, lovingly. Uh, it's how we love each other. Uh, so the second preliminary point is that every discussion every conversation or teaching on ecclesiastical leadership has as its foundation Jesus' words to his disciples in Mark 10. Uh, you may have memorized this. Uh, it's part of the memorization program that I picked up when I was a new Christian. Uh, but Jesus said to the disciples, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now Jesus demonstrated this. One of the most vivid pictures of this is when, Jesus, when he washed his disciples' feet. 
uh, at the Last Supper. That's the posture of ecclesiastical leadership. Other passages ensue, uh, Paul's letters to Timothy and to Titus about the qualifications of leaders in the church, uh, commend leadership that is exemplary in its humility and good deeds. Uh, But the basic underscoring reality is that ecclesiastical leadership is categorically and almost universally different from worldly leadership. That's the second preliminary point. The The third preliminary point is that the whole warp and woof of Scripture indicates that the heap of humanity is going to be turned upside down in the kingdom of God. Those who are insignificant are often the ones who understand God and see Jesus. Outsiders see more clearly than those close in. The last are first, the first last. The Lord comes to earth in the womb of a poor teenager, a virgin, in an insignificant village, in an insignificant country, occupied by an unfriendly empire. Mary sang to her cousin that she was delighted, overjoyed. Her soul was lifted up because God brings down the mighty from their thrones and exalts those of humble estate. So leadership is a fraught business. Israel was destroyed by unfaithful shepherds. The religious leaders of Jesus' time come under strenuous criticism from Jesus himself. Even the great leaders of the faith, uh, Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, are flawed individuals who make big mistakes. So a natural, I think, an understandable response to all of this would be to shy away from leadership. Who wants that? Who needs that? Who would want to be a leader in a fallen world when the consummation promises that the order will be flipped? It's a dangerous enterprise. And out of that larger context, we get to this verse. And it's important to have that context in view uh, when you hear, I'm going to switch over to ESV, what the apostle says when he says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Uh, Leaders are to be remembered. We saw that earlier last week. They're to be obeyed, and at the end of this passage, they are to be greeted. Uh, Maybe there is something going on in the congregation of the Hebrews. We don't know that. Uh, But the writer seems to assume the genuineness of the leadership uh, and the reticence of the flock. Uh, But two points describe these leaders. First, they are described as those who keep watch, uh, implying really uh, the whole notion of shepherding, Uh, those who kept watch over the flocks by night in Luke chapter 1 were the shepherds, and these shepherds are similarly keeping watch uh, over the flock. And of course, this calls to mind Psalm 23, uh, and it also calls to mind Jesus' assertion, his self-designation, that he was the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. The second point about the leaders is that judgment awaits them as they will have to give an account. So there's an eschatological wrinkle here, uh, that they are doing their work 
as those who will have to give an account. So, their authority cannot be confused with authoritarianism. The rest of the Bible bears witness uh, to this. And all of the commentators, every commentator I read uh, from ancient to modern, uh, was at pains to underscore the necessity of faithful shepherds. Calvin explicitly said that those who abuse the title of pastor deserve little reverence and even less trust. So again, from ancient to modern, it's not just a modern concern. From ancient to modern, this concern for uh, the shepherds. So all of us leaders need to take stock, we need to ask God to search us, and we need to fear God's judgment. But the command stands despite the flaws. Uh, Nobody is without fault, and the command still stands. Obey your leaders and submit to them. There's a university president who, interestingly, was, uh, you know, quite a remarkable guy in terms of his progressivism, his liberalism, and, uh, you know, he was the one that led to the demolition of of the humanities, Uh, but he was invited to become a university president. He did all that while he was a mere English professor, and he was alarmed at, at the, the way that his faculty at the small liberal arts college uh, seemed to have agendas that were quite at odds with instructing students. Uh, so he wrote a little book that I actually cherish, <laughs> and it's called Save the World on Your Own Time. And he gives three basic points that I think to be wisdom, and I, I'll bet I could find Bible verses to back it up. Uh, but he says, you know, life consists in three things. Number one... Do your job. Number two, don't do anyone else's job. And number three, don't let anyone else do your job. I think it's good wisdom. And it's very easy for me to be critical about the way other people are doing their jobs and conveniently neglectful of the way I'm doing my own job. So to the congregation... The writer of Hebrews says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Uh, The Apostle Paul says something um, very similar to this. In in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Uh, in, In the Bible, respect and submission are used interchangeably. And that's a good thing. That's helpful for us to understand that. But here in 1 Thessalonians, respect is seen as a loving act. To esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And so I think you can draw a connection between verse 17 here back to verse 1 in chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. You know, and in many ways this obedience or respect or submission to the leaders is a loving act. So it's not simply a part of the warp and woof of the Bible's concern for authority and submission, uh, but it's also part of this command, this central command, uh, that we love one another. How can we love those who are in authority? You know, one of the things that you do is that you respect the difficulty of the authority. And you get to yourself and say, it's a hard thing to lead. It's a hard thing to make these decisions. 
uh, it's a hard thing to get out in front. It's a very hard thing to be an example to the flock. And because that's difficult, I will commit myself not only to praying, uh, but to honoring and to respecting and to obey. And, and, and to obey. Um, Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in a helpful way, I think. He says, be responsive to your pastoral leaders. Listen to their counsel. They are alert to the condition of your lives and work under the strict supervision of God. Continue, contribute to the joy of their leadership, not its drudgery. Why would you want to make things harder for them? So this, this language of being responsive to leadership, I think it's a helpful paraphrase. Uh, and I think that you could use that language and all of the other authority submission um, uh, polls uh, that are presented in the Bible to be responsive uh, to leadership and to support it. Uh, the writer, after commanding that, comes back and, and pray, asks for prayer, uh, an earnest request for prayer uh, for his own clear conscience, at least that's the way the ESV translates this, uh, uh, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably. Pray for their clear conscience and that they might act honorably. And the earnestness with which he's asking that um, and, and the earnestness that he wants them to apply to this indicates that he needs focused, urgent, desperate prayer regarding his own leadership. And, and I think every leader would say the same thing. We need prayer. We need prayer. Have mercy. And that gets us to the second point of the sermon. Uh, the second point is the God of peace. Uh, this benediction flows out of this, and it's hard not to see that they really hang together uh, because this obedience to the leaders uh, serves the function of bringing peace in the church. Uh, godly leadership serves the function of peace in the church. Uh, responsiveness to the leaders also facilitates the peace of the church. But God is identified here as the God of peace. One of the commentators calls this a majestic conclusion, and it really is that. Uh, It's a benediction. It's a good word. Uh, It's really a prayer for the Hebrews as a congregation. I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit persnickety about this. It's part of being Presbyterian, it's part of simply being arrogant, but I, I really want to pay attention to words. And I differentiate between benedictions and doxologies. And doxologies are praises to God, and benedictions are words pronounced over the people uh, that function as prayers for them. Uh, all of these benedictions, there are a bunch of them in the New Testament, uh, but they're reflective of the priestly benediction. Uh, in Numbers chapter 6, when Aaron was told to bless the people, you know, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be merciful to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Um, This is one of the fullest and most expressive benedictions in the New Testament, and it is packed with theology. Uh, Every little point could be pulled apart, and I'll just make comments on a few of them. Let's notice what is said about God Uh, in this passage. First, he is identified as the God of peace. Uh, Now, peace here means shalom. You know the Hebrew word shalom, and you might know the larger 
reflection on what shalom was to mean, uh, it is much bigger than peace of mind. And, it is, and it's even, I think, much bigger than simply peace with God, although it might be coterminous with that. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, uh, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And that's not to be diminished uh, or in any way made smaller. But shalom is even bigger. Uh, shalom is described um, pretty eloquently by various uh, commentators and uh, theologians as a kind of universal flourishing. That shalom is, is not just when you're at peace with God, but it's, it's the fulfillment of all these promises. We were uh, reading earlier uh, this week in Deuteronomy, I think it's Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God you know, comes and says, you know, I'm going to displace all of the people uh, who are now currently living in Canaan. I'm going to put you in their spot. And not only are you going to have the land, but I'm going to guarantee that every crop is bountiful. You know, part of my promise is that all of the flocks are going to be incredibly fertile. That every single thing about your life is going to be full and it's going to be, it's just going to erupt um, in, in, uh, in, in prosperity. I mean, is that, I mean, that's a negative word these days, but that really is what's being pointed to. Fullness. That's what's happening. The God of peace, the God of shalom, this is the way that he's described here. So right off the bat, when you say, now may the God of peace, and we tend to skip right over that, but let's pause and sit with that for a minute. We are in desperate need of peace, are we not? Do we need peace? In our individual lives, in our corporate life, in, in our church life, do we need peace? We do, and happily. Happily, our God is the God of peace. Secondly, he is a mighty God who is able to bring back from the dead uh, our Lord Jesus. Now, you know, we tend to think of that as, oh yeah, I've heard that before, and we have, and that's fine. Uh, But let's think about the way in which this is a cornerstone of our faith. God demonstrates his own power in bringing Jesus back from the dead. I recently heard an interview with a history professor at the University of North Carolina who has become a Christian uh, in a very unlikely way, uh, kind of out of the blue. And one of the things that she described as a significant part of her coming to Christ was a well-written, persuasive, 600-page book on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That that got her attention. And this was, a, you know, again, 600 pages, you can imagine. Uh, it was deep. And she was a little bit blown away by that. And a couple of other books, a couple of other reflections, many conversations, and finally the conviction of her own sin uh, brought her uh, to Christ and to be baptized and to be uh, a part of the church. Uh, but the resurrection is a cornerstone. And, and I'll remind you that Jesus was not simply resuscitated. Uh, Others were resuscitated. Lazarus was resuscitated. That happened other places in the Bible, and we're led to believe that uh, on the day that Jesus was crucified, or and uh, that uh, that people were resuscitated and came out of the tombs uh, when he breathed his last. Jesus was not simply resuscitated. Uh, He was resurrected with a glorious body, never ever again to die. And his body was in a magnificent thing that's hard to describe. He's able to 
pass through walls. Uh, he's able to be touched, but he's also uh, able to elevate all kinds of things mysterious about that body to which he was resurrected. So our God is a powerful God. He's a God of peace, but he is a mighty God who can raise the dead. He's also a compassionate God who would give his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not be destroyed but have everlasting life. Bringing again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, uh, indicates his compassion. And I think it's, it's important as we are prone to think of God the Father as severe, you know, all those Old Testament laws and all that wrath. I mean, this is the common parlance uh, in our world today, that the Old Testament God is this God of wrath, where the New Testament, Jesus, full of compassion, mercy, in his reception of tax collectors and sinners, is the good one. Uh, that, you know, that's a terrible mistake. And it's important, in as much as we're prone to think that way, to remember that it was God who sent his son, that it was God who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, that it was God who loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. The heart of the Father, the heart of the Father is to be appreciated and embraced. The heart of a father who is willing to give uh, his only son. He's also, again, in the verses I just read, a faithful God who makes and keeps covenants. Earlier in chapter 6 of Hebrews, it was noted that God is Unable to break his promises, he's definitively the one who keeps uh, his covenant. And the promises run two ways. The promises exist, uh, there are promises to bless and there are promises to curse. And God is equally faithful. He does both of those. He will bless those who come to him and he will curse those uh, who refuse to do so. He will bless those who obey and he will curse those who violate uh, the covenant. Lastly, and I think this might be a pretty important thing, <clears throat> he is also resourceful. Uh, he is full of resources. He equips his people with everything good that you may do his will. That's verse 21. Working in us that which is pleasing uh, in his sight. He's able to equip you for everything good for doing his will, but one of the commentators, Raymond Brown, and, I, and this quote did not make it into the bullet, and I'm sorry, that's my fault, uh, but he makes a very important point to say uh, that the word can mean making complete, uh, but the word also means to restore, repair, or mend. And that this word that is used here for equipping you with everything good is the word that is used when the disciples are mending their nets uh, at the shore uh, after an evening's worth of fishing. And so he draws this out and says God can not only equip you, he not only supplies you what is necessary, but he is also able to repair that which is broken. And that's a good thing for the Hebrews to remember because there was a lot that was broken. You know, they had come perilously close to abandoning the faith. They had come perilously close to 
as it was described earlier, uh, trampling underfoot the blood of Christ and treating it as an unholy thing. They'd gotten very close to that. And you kind of get the idea that some of them might have actually done that. And there has to be the question, can we be repaired? Can what is broken be restored? And so he comes at the end of the letter and says, I want you to know that God is perfectly capable of doing that. That he can repair what is broken. He can give you everything that is necessary to make you complete. It's almost time to pray, except that I want to reflect really briefly on what is hinted at here at the end uh, when he says uh, that he brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus and that this working in us is through Jesus Christ to him be glory forever and ever. Jesus is described as the great shepherd of the sheep. Uh, Again, that shepherding is a rich and troubling biblical theme because of the laments in the Old Testament, Isaiah and Ezekiel about Uh, Israel's failed shepherds. Um, But against that background, Jesus announced himself as the good shepherd, and he remains the shepherd of the church. Uh, The the leaders of the church, the elders of the church, are are only under-shepherds. We understand that, and we use that language frequently. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep, Uh, and he is the one who will receive glory forever and ever and ever and ever. And, and if you're not familiar with it, I would suggest go listen to Messiah this afternoon. I brought up some of the tracks and played them this morning. T was wondering what was up in the sermon. Uh, but that hallelujah chorus, you know, where it is said that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And he shall reign forever and ever. And if you know the music, it's back and forth. It's wave upon wave. You know, the kingdom of our God is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And this is what comes to mind uh, at the end of this great letter. And and actually, I don't know if you remember this, but the Hallelujah Chorus is not the end of Handel's Messiah. It's always interesting for for neophytes, as I have been, uh, that you sing the Hallelujah Chorus and a lot of people stand up you know, they jump up when they sing it, and when it's done, you know, you're ready to, if you're an old rock and roll guy like me, applaud and call for a standing ovation. But no, everybody sits back down because there's more to it. There's several more songs, and you find out, whoa, some of the good stuff. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Behold, I tell you a mystery. The trumpet shall sound. All those things come after. And then you get to the proper conclusion. And the last two bits is when they sing, worthy is the Lamb. And then the, when they sing the Amen. And again, I would heartily recommend that you go dig this up on YouTube this afternoon. And if you, if you got the ability to get to the Handel Hyden website, go watch them do worthy and Amen. It comes from Revelation 5. It's the song now being sung in heaven. You know, we read back in chapter 12 that you have not come to Sinai, to a mountain that is smoking and burning and trembling and thunder. Uh, But you have come to Zion. Uh, You have come to myriads and myriads of angels uh, in festal gathering. Uh, It's a description of of Revelation 5. 
and the song that's being sung there now that is going to be the song that we're going to sing forever is, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And it ends with, and the four living creatures said, Amen. Fell down and worshiped. That's a good conclusion to this letter. uh, To remember this God of peace who is able to equip us with everything good for doing his will and to do that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. And maybe you've never entered into that kind of worship. I would invite you to do so this morning. Uh, The kind of worship um, that gives yourself entirely to the praise of God. You will be warming up for eternity. Uh, Maybe this will be your first taste of the unique and beautiful uh, taste of grace. Uh, that can fill your heart and that can really uh, enable you, transform you uh, into the image of Christ uh, that will make you, in fact, a new person. So let's pray.